0: This morning we are resuming our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. Uh, So 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, 1 through 5 is where we're going to be this morning. You're turning and tapping and making your way there. Uh, A number of years ago, and uh, you've probably experienced this if you've been to most major cities You've walked around, and and as you're kind of walking in a courtyard or down the street, you see kind of living art. You see people dressed up as uh, statues, pieces of furniture, lamps, famous people. Well, a number of years ago, we were on vacation, and we were walking through this amazing courtyard uh, in Rome, and and we see these people a long ways away. I see a miniature of the Statue of Liberty. I see the platform, this box that they're standing on. I see the person. I see the stuff in their hands. I've seen this dozens of times, and so I'm not at all fazed by it, not at all thinking, oh my goodness, what is the Statue of Liberty doing in miniature in Rome? I mean, how amazing. God bless America. Like, none of these things are coming through my mind. None of these thoughts are rushing in, but my aunt, by marriage, not by blood, my aunt... (laughs) You'll see why this is important. It's like she's with us, and this is like the ultimate redneck tour of Europe. I mean, and so we're walking along, and and she gets closer, and you can see her eyes getting bigger, and and her eyes up until this point had only gotten large when she saw purses, but now they're getting large because she sees this thing in front of us, and she walks up, and you can see her like slow crawling up to it, and I just thought, oh. Like, do you not see the bucket? Like, they want money. They want a tip. This is what's going on. This is for our entertainment. Let's just keep walking. But she didn't. She just kind of kept going up to it and getting closer and closer and just looking at it. And then she pulled out the finger and you thought, no, not the finger. And she reaches over and she gets about this close to it. And the person goes, ah! And she jumped and cussed and flew and wheezed. You see, what was before her was the very embodiment, this kind of living representation of the Statue of Liberty. And so my my aunt, by marriage, bought in hook, line, and sinker. She saw uh, this thing before her, and she thought, oh, my goodness, why would they have this here? And so she was completely bought in. And everything around it was echoing this message that this is legitimate, that this is real, and this had to be, in her sense, Touched and not just seen. You see, there are a number of things that we could embody, that we could kind of take on flesh. And what Paul calls us to do in 1 Corinthians 2 1 through 5 is in our lives to be the very embodiment of the true message. Of Jesus Christ. He calls us to do that and then he gives us examples for how he does that. But let's talk just briefly about some common uh, ways that we extend the gospel or some common ways that we hear the gospel put forward and described. I think one of the most common ways that we hear uh, people kind of engage in extensions of the gospel or just kind of conversations about Christianity is this heaven or hell dichotomy. And so what we do is we simply go to people and they say, we say, do you want to suffer in hell, this place of anguish and torment for all eternity, or do you want to go to heaven where it's great and it's enjoy, it's enjoyable and you get to be with God for all eternity? Well, faced with like sitting and burning and then flesh tearing away and where the worm never dies and all these things, anything sounds better than that. And so if it's this binary choice, we choose the good place, so to speak, instead of choosing Hell. Or other things that we do, we we have this high and emotive appeal. And so we spin people up into this web of emotion, and we carry them along all the way, in some sense, to the throne of God. And and since they're spun into this emotion, we ask them then from that place to make an emotional decision for Jesus. And so we allow their emotion to carry them across the finish line. I think probably the most heinous of all of these is the benefit option. And so we tell people, look, your life, let's just, let's just be brutally honest, your life kind of sucks. It's terrible. You've got no money. Your car is pitiful. Your house is awful. Your clothes are ratty. Your friends are worthless. Your parking spot's always at the back of the line. There is no favor. There is no goodness in your life. Come to God. He's going to take care of all of these things. It's kind of this Jesus and. Jesus and. Salvation is a byproduct, but really salvation is the conduit whereby we receive financial and physical blessing. And the people all over the world are lining up to get in line for this. And we see this directly contradicts Jesus who said, to come to me is to suffer and die. It's to carry your cross. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Repeatedly, we see that the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffer and to do so gladly because it joins us in following him. So Paul gives us then this message that he conveyed to the church in Corinth. He gives us what it was that he he communicated to them. Let me read 1 through 5, and then we'll walk through it together. Paul writes and says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible, or maybe your translation says persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith, listen to this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul writes to them, and in essence, he is communicating to them the the reason he came and the manner in which he came to them. So look at how he starts here. He says, and when I came to you, brothers. And so Paul is asking them in some sense to recall Paul's ministry to that church in Corinth. And so in Acts chapter 18, we see a a summary of Paul's time there in Corinth. He picks up and he says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so we see Paul is there, and the text goes on to tell us his kind of manner of engaging, his manner of, of, of uh, sharing the gospel with people. He says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks... But what you'll find is that over and again, over the year and a half, the full 18 months that Paul is there, his message is decidedly simple. It's decidedly simple. It is this this crystallized, small version of the gospel. He's teaching them not with eloquent wisdom, as we've read previously in 1 Corinthians, but he is teaching them in full humility. So he's come to them, and he's, he's, he's comparing himself to them in some sense. He's lumping himself together in there with them, saying that we are brothers. We have this shared heritage of Jesus Christ. We are together. Remember when I came to you. Now look at what he says. He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. Now, why is this important? Well, you see, what Paul is doing in some sense is tying back in what he said in 18 through 25 and in 26 through 31. 18 through 25, Paul had told us repeatedly that wisdom is of little value. Earthly wisdom, man's wisdom is of no value. And and so, in, in fact, it is the folly of God that is winning these people to the Lord. And so he told them, this isn't what I did. And then in, 16 through, or in, sorry, in 26 through 31, we find out why Paul wasn't employing wisdom. In 18 through 25, he said, look, I'm not going to use wisdom. I know you enjoy this. I know you seek after this, but I'm not going to do it. And then in 26 through 31, he says, look, it's good for you that I didn't use wisdom. And why is this? He leads out. He says, for not many of you are wise. In essence, saying, look, if I had employed wisdom, if I had employed this kind of high and mighty speech, you might have been swelled to emotion, but you would not have gotten it. You would not have understood what I was talking about because not many of you are wise. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are noble birth. They are low and average people by and large. So it's important that they recognize that Paul is the very embodiment of this message. So if 18 through 25 is telling us that earthly wisdom is not good, that we cannot attain to the knowledge of God through it, then what we see in this verse is that Paul himself demonstrated this in his flesh. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So what is this testimony of God? Notice that Paul doesn't say, I didn't come to you communicating the testimony of God, but he says, I didn't come to you communicating it this way. The simple testimony of God is that humanity has rebelled against God, that God created everything, that humanity rebelled against God, that God intervened, that he sent his son Jesus, and in his son Jesus, uh, Jesus suffered and he died. He took upon our sin, and then God raised him up from the dead, and he sits exalted upon high at the right hand of the Father for all times. And so this is his simple testimony that Paul has communicated to them. Now, why is this important? Paul's going to continue to kind of display all the various ways that this is spelled out. But look in verse 2. He said, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is especially important because if you look back at verse 23 of chapter 1, look at what he says. He says, we preach Christ crucified. And so there's continuity of his message. But look at what he says next. We preach Christ crucified, and it is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Imagine that you are trying to sell some product. Imagine you are trying to get people engaged and to buy in. And you know that there is a way, a manner, a method of communication that you could use, a way you can articulate or spin your message that is going to make them want it, and there's a way that you could spin your message or some truth about your message that you could, you could lay out and say that you would know certainly they would say, oh no, close the door, we don't want that. But you would know that, that if you hide or conceal this one element of your message, that you'd be corrupting the whole thing. And so you're forced with this decision. You can faithfully communicate about it, Or you can be unfaithful and hide and obscure. So Paul goes straight to the heart of it. He said, when I was there with you, I was proclaiming, I was communicating, I was preaching, I was displaying the gospel. But the whole time I was there, I was faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ because the repeated onus of my message, the central point of my message, was Christ crucified. And I know that as I look out at my audience, I have the Jews, and every time I say Christ crucified, they say, I can't handle that. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. The Messiah would never go down like this. I can't receive it. And I know that every time I say Christ crucified, the Gentiles, the Greeks, would look at it and say, that is complete and utter stupidity. I can't believe this. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. This is folly and foolishness. So of my audience, that when I come to them, I know that one of them says, I can't receive this, this is too hard. The other one says, this is complete madness and stupidity. I can't receive this, but yet I continue to preach it. Why? Because it's the very heart of what Christianity is. Christ crucified. There in him crucified, him taking on our sin, our punishment, the death, the penalty of sin that was rightly ours. Suffering and anguish that should have been ours. This is the gospel. That humanity is able to be saved because God has sent his son to be this atoning sacrifice for us. It's not that he dismissed sin and pushed it aside, but God poured out his wrath on the son so that we might have salvation in his name. Now look what he says. And so he's on point with this message. Verse 3. He says, and I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, there are a couple of different ways that we can look at this and understand this. One is just this, it is what it is. It is what it says it is. And every time Paul opened his mouth to speak, he was just kind of shaking all over and he's just really nervous and he just doesn't know. He's got the pit sweat and he's just kind of all these things and ums and uhs and, and whatever way you might say this. Well, that doesn't seem to make much sense. We know that, that Paul, when he goes to Athens, he's, he's brilliant when he opens his mouth. We know that he has this great knowledge that he stood and delivered, that he gives compelling speeches in front of kings, that he gives compelling speeches in front of tribunals. And so it wouldn't make much sense that as Paul suddenly gets to Corinth, all of a sudden he's just terrified every time he stands up to speak. Was he afraid because primarily uh, you've got the Jews and you've got the Gentiles, and every time he stands up to speak, they've got these massive roadblocks in their way? That's possible. Could it be that, that he understood the centrality of the message should be so incredibly powerful that he was captivated by a fear of God when he spoke? That's certain. But I think what he's trying to communicate in this is this tremendous humility that he brought every time he presented I want you to think we've talked a couple of times about the sophists, these guys that would travel through Corinth, they would travel through ancient Rome, and when they would step into the room, like everybody wanted to hear this person. Imagine you have... Uh, kind of this Neil Armstrong who certainly if he stands in a room and he begins to talk about you know going to the moon everybody's kind of wrapped in attention and so then you have some comedian and you you can bring them into this personality as well and so you have incredibly smart incredibly charming funny all kind of melded to one person that when they speak, their goal is to elicit applause. Their goal is to get you to cheer. Their goal is to get you to shout. Their goal is to get you to buy in. And so Paul says, or he's been comparing himself to them this whole time, and saying, you know these people who, when they speak, you can't help but listen. But we see in the manner and the method and the delivery of Paul, humility. He's not standing, he's not desiring to bring applause to himself. He's not standing, he's not desiring to bring attention to himself. He preaches Christ crucified. And then he describes himself in the most base, humbling, self-effacing manner possible. I was with you in weakness. Remember, not many of you were strong. I was with you in fear, and I was with you in much trembling. He recognizes the weightiness of the message, but he gets out of the way of the message so that the people might encounter God. It's interesting to note that over the course of Scripture, this is the repeated uh, method that we find over and over again from the spokesperson of God. When God comes to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to go and you speak to my people. Moses says, but God. And so in Exodus 4.10, we find that Moses' argument was that he was not eloquent. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, and and God speaks to Isaiah, Isaiah's response is, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And in in Jeremiah 1.6, what we see is that Jeremiah's excuse was that he was young. God uses the unlikely to accomplish the amazing. Paul is dressing himself in this manner, carrying himself in this manner, And I believe he would say to you and I today, the power in our sharing, the power in our communication is not found in our delivery. Although we should work hard at our delivery. We should know our content. We should be able to flow from verse to verse. We should be able to communicate well. We should be able to look somebody in the eye and not be ashamed when we're speaking with them. But the power of conversion doesn't lie in the persuasiveness of our speech. Look what he says, verse 4. He says, in my speech, so we know what he looks like, verse 3, but his speech, in my message, the ESV renders this plausible. They're not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in this demonstration of the spirit and of power. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to have one of these incredibly high-pressure sales pitches. Have you ever sat under one of these? I think the first one was when I was eighteen I was looking for a job and i I went to this center and I showed up and it turns out it was a kind of a, a, this massive call to sell Cutco. I realized I knew very little about knives and I also didn't have enough money to buy a starter kit, so that wasn't going to work well for me and My family doesn't have enough money to buy fancy knives, but I ended up in one of these these deals and and they were selling uh all kinds of products we were on this uh kind of, we had paid a tour guide to take us through an area in, in Morocco. And a lot of these tour guides, they link with local vendors and they get a kickback from what's sold. And so they take you through the pottery and the, and the pottery guy, Valerie and I wanted to buy this bowl. He's like, it's very, very sturdy. He's like slamming it on the ground. He slides it across the floor. I'm like, well, I don't want that one. I want like the non-damaged one, like the non-crash on the floor one, the one that's not Tupperware. And so, but we end up in this area and there are like spices and oils. I mean, if you think you're into oils, you have no idea. Like this was the oil Mecca. And so we're in there and we're in this room. There's a few of us gathered together. And this guy is just like this master salesman. And so he would look at somebody who's like, you're bald. But if you take a little bit of this liniment and do this number, and he's rubbing on the guy's head. And you're looking at it just expecting like hair to start spucking up. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Just keep rubbing. And then he goes to this woman who has a weight issue. And he's like, if you take these pills, you're going to drop weight." No, he could have just said, if you drink our water, you drop weight. Because that did the same thing. But he's, he's doing it over and over and over again. And so all these various things do it. And And this right here, this, this does your complexion. And this right here, this cures impotence. And this right here, this will grow you to be taller. And this right here, this will grow you to be shorter. And it, I, like I wanted everything. We bought saffron because you can cook with it. But, but in this, he goes, and, and it's just an amazing display that he was convinced that his products would work for us. He was convinced that if we would only do this, that he would make money. And so he wanted us to believe there was power and ability in these things to regrow hair and to lose weight and become more beautiful, more eloquent, more potent, more powerful. Paul steps in. He says, look, I didn't do any of this. I didn't do any of this. I came to you and I spoke Simply, I came to you and the message was compelling because the gospel of Jesus Christ is compelling. We don't have to make the gospel compelling. We don't have to make the gospel persuasive. It already is. So Paul comes to the gospel and he says, look, I just lay it open in front of people and, and, and I say, this is what it says. This is what it does for you. This is how it can transform your life. There's, there's nothing he has to add to it to make it more compelling. There's nothing he has to add to it to make it more effective. He simply says, this is what I did. I came in and I spoke to you in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, lest you believe that what Paul did was stand in there and enter into some type of miraculous theatrics, and walk over and say, every, every stand, he's paralyzed, but every stand, everybody said, Look, look what he did. He healed somebody. And so we have to believe. That's not what he's talking about. We don't see him doing those types of things, we don't see those things recorded there. What he's talking about is the, demonst- <clears throat> the demonstration of the Spirit in conversion. Now, why is this important? We recognize that these were a people who wanted to see signs. Back in chapter 1 and verse 22. It says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So he's not doing signs. He's not pulling out all these tricks. He's not engaged in miraculous. He's not leading them in wisdom. But what he's doing is resting in a full reliance on the spirit. Paul said something really similar to the the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He says, the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and listen to this, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among yourselves for your sake. The gospel is compelling, and the Spirit works for conviction, and that is the Spirit, and that is the power. Jesus speaking to the disciples about what it would be like when he left and when the Spirit comes, said these words in John sixteen eight. He says, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So this power, this demonstration in this is a full reliance on the Holy Spirit. So we see that Paul came in and he came in simply, humbly, not in bold bravado and power. He came in not seeking to dress up the gospel in the four C's of life change, not in telling them how it was going to enhance their life, but calling them to surrender and to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel itself is compelling. Not his words, not his speech. Why is this important? Why does it matter? See, if you look back at our previous examples and. If you chose heaven because hell sounded awful. If we're swollen up into some just groundswell of emotion and we find ourselves saying yes and we walk an aisle and we're dunked in some water. And if we find ourselves coming in because of how it'll benefit us, a nicer car, a larger bank account, more attractive friends. And we bought into something, but we haven't bought into Christianity. Why is it so important that we rest on the gospel? Because of verse 5. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The gospel's compelling. The gospel changes lives. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. It calls us to walk in Righteousness true conversion yields true fruit. So important for us to recognize. Back in verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul had written, he said, for Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There are many things that we might seek to employ and use to make the gospel more palatable And seemingly more powerful. We have to reject these. Why? Because to do so, we're trusting in our power and ability. Our ability to convince. Our ability to move. Our ability to persuade. The gospel convinces, moves, and persuades. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, convicts. So let's think about just a couple of things in application and closing when we believe this as Christians, our assurance, our ability to rest and trust in the saving work of Jesus isn't on the strength of an argument that somebody put forward. We didn't buy into some type of Pascal's wager where it was better to believe and be wrong than to disbelieve and be wrong. We didn't buy into somebody's demonstration where they laid out Christianity and all these opposing worldviews. And we said, Christianity sounds pretty great. I think I'll go that route. Our assurance rests not in the strengths of the arguments put forward to us, but it rests in the finished work of Jesus. And this is why Paul says repeatedly, I preached Christ crucified. He is crucified for our sin. He is risen for our new life. We need no other atoning for sin. So our assurance always rests in the finished work of jesus it gives us boldness from this place of assurance and not waffling on on whether or not he loves us and whether or not we're saved how do we know we're saved because we know that jesus died and he rose again and we believe in them but we have boldness in our witness because it doesn't matter if we call the wrong verse or use just a really terrible analogy or if we mistake the person's first name over and over and over again. Some years ago, I was in seminary and had an opportunity or forced opportunity to go out and, and to share the gospel as a part of First Julius, who does just an amazing job extending the gospel in their neighborhoods, in their apartments. And so I go out with this guy and he's like 90 years old and he drives like 90,000 miles an hour. I swear he couldn't see or hear. Oh. And so I go out with this guy and we're knocking on doors in this apartment complex and we knock on this one door and the guy comes to the door and he's on the phone like the entire time with his brother from who lives in South Korea. He's like, hold on, I got a guy at the door. He just holds the phone right there. And he's like, Hey, my name is uh, John. What's your name? The guy says, my name's Bob. He's like, all right, Dan. Uh, I mean, just kept calling the guy's name, the wrong name the whole time. And, and we just kept going through this and he's laying out and his illustrations were absolutely terrible. I mean, they were just awful. I mean, he's just, he had memorized his script and he was reading this script and it was incredibly impersonable. I mean, he called the guy Dan the whole time. The guy's name's not Dan. His brother's probably in the other end. His name's not Dan. <laughs> and so he's running through this whole thing and, and it took like 30 minutes. In 30 minutes, the guy's just standing there on the phone and occasionally, like, yeah, man, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah, hold on, I'm still here. Uh, Hold on, can I go Yeah, oh, no, oh, uh, yeah, I'm still here, hold on. (laughs) Just like 30 minutes, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. This guy's very, very kind to endure this, but enough is enough. We get to the end, and the guy says, have I explained this well to you? And the guy says, you have. He said, let me ask you a question, Dan. Still not his name. He said, would you like to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Believing in him for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. and the guy just broke down and proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. Not only did he break down and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, there was a woman that passed us that went up on the balcony right above us that had stood there the whole time and listened. Her name's not Dan either. <laughs> and when it came time to pray, she came running downstairs. She said, look, I stood upstairs, I eavesdropped her, heard the whole thing. I want to put my faith in Jesus. She can call people the wrong name. You can get your illustrations wrong. You can misquote verses. And the Holy Spirit can work anyway. The Holy Spirit works and responds to our obedience and in his power to convict. So it brings us assurance. It brings us boldness. If you're here today and you've been weighing the truths of Christianity, wondering, is this thing true? You know, it just doesn't make sense that this creator God of the whole universe, would allow us to rebel against him and that would seek to bring us back to himself, would pay our penalty of sin through sacrificing his perfect son. So logically, you think of it and you say, it just doesn't make sense. I just can't wrap my mind around it. It is utter foolishness. And there are many stumbling blocks between you and faith. But there is a God who loves you, a God who desires you to know Him, and He extends to you an offer to come through the blood of His Son, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Greeks. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word, its clarity thank you. Your word is powerful and persuasive. We don't need clever speeches or five points of remembrance. For your spirit does the work of conviction, oftentimes in spite of our fumbling and faults and inadequacies. So God, we pray for the work of your spirit in this place right now, that for the believer that you would be calling them to obedience to the manifestation and production of fruit in their life, fruit keeping in line with repentance. And Father, we pray for the unbeliever, the person who has not yet submitted themselves to follow Jesus, that your Spirit would work to convict them of sin and call them unto righteousness through Jesus. I thank you that you called me. You've called many in this room. And God, I pray that for us, that we would always be faithful to extend the gospel, to live the gospel, and to be obedient to it in all things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.